Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> it's an honor for me to share with you this morning. <clears throat> How many of you are familiar with that show on HGTV called Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines? Isn't that a great show? Charming couple, very talented in what they do. Chip's favorite day is demo day. He loves tearing down walls and destroying things. It's his favorite day. And his wife, Joanna, her favorite day is beautifying the house by, uh, you know, decorating it and put all the, putting all the finishing touches on before the big reveal. The reason I mention this is I think today, today's message is going to be a little bit like fixer-upper, complete with demo day and beautifying day. The title of my message this morning is Humility. And just because I'm talking about humility doesn't mean that I'm an expert in humility. Although I have written a book about humility, it's an autobiography. <laughs> the title is The Three Most Humble People I Ever Knew and How I Met the Other Two. Now, I want you guys to know that I'm preaching to myself this morning as well. And in fact, I'm sitting right there in the front pew. Our theme scripture today is taken from Philippians 2. So if you've got your Bibles with you or your electronic devices, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 9. Could we please stand in honor of God's word? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name, the name that is above every name. Heavenly Father, we just submit ourselves to you this morning. We open our hearts before you. Lord, let us receive the word of God implanted today that it might transform our lives now and bear eternal fruit in the future. Lord, have your way in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may all be seated. Point number one, humility is the essence of Christ-likeness. First, we need a spiritual review of our tragic history. Why God created us is a mystery. He is perfect and complete in and of himself. There is nothing lacking in God that we somehow fulfill. But there was something in the heart of God that wanted to share and display his love and his beauty and his glory. And so God created us with the objective of making us partakers of his goodness and his perfection. Now, it's important to understand that we were not created to possess these qualities in and of ourselves, independent and self-sufficient, but rather we were created to live in relationship with God in absolute dependence upon him. And out of that place of perfect unity and intimacy, God wanted to live in us and through us to manifest his beauty and glory. Humility 
is the state of the creature that allows us to live in that place of utter dependence upon God. When Satan, who was cast out of heaven for his pride, tempted Eve, his words carried with them the poison of pride. When Adam and Eve listened to Satan and yielded to the desire to be like God, that poison entered their souls and destroyed the humility and the dependence upon God that would have allowed him and us to live in close union with him forever. Pride was the poison that Satan breathed into the hearts of our first parents. The poison of pride fundamentally changed them and it changed the world in which they lived. Pride was the poison that caused all the ugliness in the world, all the bloodshed, all the wars down through the ages, all the selfless selfishness and suffering, all of the vain ambitions and jealousies, all of the broken hearts and embittered lives, and all of the multiplied unhappiness down through the years have their origin in pride. Nothing is so natural to us Nothing is so insidious and hidden from our sight, and nothing is so dangerous and resistant as pride. Amen. Second, the need for redemption. In our backyard, near uh, one of our flower gardens, we have this, this root, and I don't know how big it is. I I've tried to dig it out several times and can't. It would probably require a bulldozer to get it out. But this root, every spring, keeps sending up these sprouts, these shoots that are ugly and big and woody, and, and I keep cutting them down. But every spring, they keep coming up. This root never goes away. It never dies. Its life and what it produces are in that root. And as long as that root is there, those, that fruit, those sprouts are going to keep coming up spring after spring. The seed and the root of pride that Satan brought from hell and whispered into the life of mankind is working daily, hourly, and even moment by moment with mighty power throughout the world. Men and women suffer from it. They fight it. They flee it. They disguise it. They even glory in it, but it never goes away. The root produces the same stuff over and over and over. It's the presence of pride that makes our redemption so necessary. My wife, Connie, and I have the habit of talking to our TV. I don't know if any of you have that same, same thing. We talk to the TV. I come home from work, I, we get some dinner, we sit down and we turn on the national news and we listen to the news reports and, and the commentators and all the things that are going on and we can't help but talking back to that rectangular box. Now, I know they can't hear us, but, but we still talk anyhow. And if you were a fly on the wall, some of the comments that you'd hear us say are something like this. Well, what did you expect? Or, oh, oh like that's going to help. Are you serious? How's that working for you? You've got to be kidding me. I mean, if we say that once or twice, we've said it a, a dozen times. What surprises me is when the media is surprised by the next scandal. Everyone was so shocked by the horrible sexual behavior of prominent and powerful men. With the Me Too movement almost every day for weeks, there was another familiar name being exposed and splashed across the media outlets. 
And I'm looking at the TV and I'm saying, why are we all surprised? This has been going on since the fall of man. And then they talk about the need for mandatory sexual sensitivity training as if that's going to take care of the problem. Now, don't get me wrong. I am glad that these things are being exposed. I think we should make laws to protect our women. And I think we should do everything we can to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace. But do any of us have the illusion that this is going away? No. Sin will find a way. As long as the root is bad, that which the root produces is going to be bad. A good friend of mine is fond of saying, there are many ways to polish a turd, but in the end, it's still a turd. (laughs) Honey, can you believe the pastor just said turd in church? (laughs) Pride has infected the human race. It has its root and its strength in a spiritual power both outside of us and inside of us. Nothing can save us but the restoration of our lost humility. Jesus came to bring that humility back to earth, to make us partakers of it, and to empower us to live as he lived. Third, humility incarnate. Jesus is spoken of in Scripture as the second Adam. The first Adam failed to walk in humility before God. The second Adam walked in perfect humility before God. What was the incarnation but humility as Jesus emptied himself of his divine rights and became a man? What was his life on earth but humility as he willingly took on the life of a servant? What was his sacrifice for our sins but humility as he became obedient to the point of death? Christ is humility incarnate. And as our Redeemer, he has become the new root into which our lives have been grafted. He is the firstborn of a new order of creation. And if this is the new root that we are connected to, the nature of that root should be seen in every branch, every leaf, and every piece of fruit. Humility must be the distinguishing feature of his children who are to be a reflection of who he is. The biggest problem and the greatest tragedy in the church today is that we try to live the Christian life while still being connected to the old root. It's impossible to produce good fruit when the source of our lives is still that root of pride. Is it any wonder why the statistics for undesirable behaviors is the same in the church as it is in the world? The lack of love we often have for one another the indifference to the needs and feelings of the people around us, the mean comments, the hasty judgments, the expressions of anger and bitterness, our touchiness and irritability, all have their root in pride. Until we learn how to live out of our new nature in Christ, there is little hope that our lives will reflect the nature of God. There is little hope that we will actually live in peace and unity with each other. Fourth, Humility in the life and teachings of Jesus. From the scripture, we see that the humility, we see the humility of Jesus by the way he related to the Father. It was obvious that Jesus took the place of voluntary surrender to God and constantly gave God the honor and the glory. 
In fact, Jesus speaks about his relationship to the Father. When he does, he often uses words like nothing or not. Let me give you an example from John 5, verse 30. By myself, I can do nothing. This is God in the flesh saying that he can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. This verse and so many others like it reveal the deepest motivation of Jesus' life and work. They show how the Father was able to accomplish his redemptive purposes through the Son. Jesus emptied himself of his own power, of his own will, of his own glory, of his own mission. He said, I am nothing, that God might be everything. And this life of absolute surrender and dependence upon the Father was the source of Christ's joy and peace. And Jesus lost nothing by giving himself to the Father in this way because in the end, God honored his Son by exalting him to his own right hand in glory. Now, when we come with the same disposition of Jesus, then we become partakers of his divine nature. This posture of humility acknowledges that self has nothing good except as an empty vessel for God to fill, a vessel through which God can display his beauty and glory. This posture of humility is the true realization that we are nothing and God is everything. This is the life that Jesus came to reveal and to impart to us. Because of this positive, excuse me, because of this posture of humility before God, Jesus was also to walk, able to walk in humility with those around him, with the disciples and those around him. It allowed him to be the servant of all. Not only did Jesus demonstrate humility by living it before God and living it with those around him, but he constantly taught about it. There is clearly the expectation that he wanted his disciples and all of us to walk in the same humility that he did. At the very beginning of his ministry, in one of his first public sermons, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The kingdom of God is for those who are aware that they have nothing in themselves and seek nothing for themselves. In the only passage where Jesus gives a description of himself, Matthew 11, he says, Learn of me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. I believe one of those who was baptized this morning quoted that scripture. Learn of me means learn how to be like I am. At one point, the disciples were disputing amongst themselves about who was the greatest. So Jesus took a child from their midst and he set it in the midst of them. And he said this in Matthew 18. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What is the chief distinction of the heavenly kingdom? Humility. The sons of Zebedee, James and John, asked if they could sit on his right hand and his left hand, the highest places in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said this in Matthew 20, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. In God's economy, the lowest is the nearest to God. Jesus tells the parable about honor. 
And he says, don't take the place of honor, but take the lowest place. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 14. Humility is the only ladder to honor in God's kingdom. Humility is our work. Exaltation is God's work. After washing his disciples' feet, Jesus said, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. You guys, this was the topic of conversation during their last meal together. For that reason, you know that humility and servanthood was of utmost importance to Jesus and should be to us as well. The path that Jesus walked, which he opened up before us, is the humility that allows us to be servants of all. This is our deliverance from sin and self. Fifth, humility in the life and teachings of the disciples. We've already seen that their, dis- that their interactions with Jesus showed basically how the disciples lacked the grace of humility. Now, they had some moments of clarity, to be sure, but for the most part, the disciples struggled with pride and selfishness just like we do. But be that as it may, there's a lot that we can learn from the disciples about humility. The first thing is that we can be Christians or followers of Christ while still having pride in our lives. These 12 disciples, they were Jesus' inner circle. They had forsaken everything to follow him. They left their jobs instantly and went and followed Jesus. They lived with him day in and day out for three years. They believed that Jesus was from God, that he was the Messiah. They loved him and tried to obey his commands. They stood with him when others fell away. They were even prepared to die for him. And yet, on the night before Jesus was crucified, they were still arguing about who was the greatest. Deeper than all of their love and devotion was the power of selfishness and pride. I think you can see where I'm going with this. We may have been walking with the Lord for years. We may have an intimate knowledge of the word. We may have used the gifts that God has given us to be a blessing to the body of Christ. But when we're tested, when the pressure and the challenges of life squeeze us, and especially when it comes to living in harmony in our closest relationships, it is all too evident that the grace of humility is far from us. The second thing the disciples teach us is that knowledge and effort alone are powerless to conquer pride. The disciples sat at the feet of Jesus, their teacher, for three years. Time after time, they heard Jesus say to them, to the Pharisees, and to the multitudes around them that the only way to true godliness was through humility. Jesus lived humbly before them, and he made it one of the major themes of his teachings. But in spite of this, even right up to the end, the disciples were operating in pride. They tried to follow his teaching. They tried to please him, but no lesson, no example, not even Christ himself could cast pride from them. Which brings us to the third thing the disciples teach us, and that is that only by the power of the indwelling Christ can we become truly humble. Only by the power of the indwelling Christ can we become truly humble. 
As I mentioned before, we have our pride from Adam. We can only get our humility from Christ. It is only as the divine nature of Christ is allowed to take root in us that we will display humility and the nature of God. It is only as his divine nature takes root in us that the old nature can be overcome and superseded. Pride rules in us with an incredible power because it's been a part of our nature from the beginning. But in the same way, humility now needs to become our nature. How? Well, you may recall when Jesus was preparing the disciples for his departure, he said, it is good for you that I go to the Father because it's only as I go to the Father that he will send the Holy Spirit. And if he sends the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will come and live in you. And when the Holy Spirit was poured out, he could do what Jesus couldn't do when Jesus was on the earth. Because while Jesus was on the earth with his disciples, he could be with his disciples. But now by the Holy Spirit, he could actually be in his disciples and live his life through them. And this is true for us as well. The only way that Christ's humility can be our humility is if he is allowed to live his life through us. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. The lives of Peter and James and John are testimonies of this transformation. On the night before he was crucified, of course, they were arguing about who was the greatest. But just a few weeks later, after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them, they became completely different men. They became possessed, literally possessed by the Spirit of God that allowed Christ to live his life through theirs. And we can see it by their lives, by their writings, and even by their deaths. They displayed or revealed the same humility that Christ had. So, number one, humility is the essence of God. Point number one. Point number two, humility is the key to healthy relationships. In 1 John 4, verse 20, John says this, For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. It is very sobering to think that our love for God is measured by our everyday relationships with others. It's easy to think that we've humbled ourselves before God, but our humility toward each other is the only real proof that our humility before God is real. Amen or oh me. It's not the humility that we show when we're worshiping or praying or greeting each other with a friendly smile, but it's the humility we carry with us every day that tests and proves what spirit possesses us. It is in our most unguarded moments that show us who we really are and what we're really made of, like our reaction to the guy who cut us off on the belt line. Or that irritating thing that your spouse says that just simply drives you crazy. There are literally hundreds of scriptures in the Bible that talk about the importance of walking in humility with one another. Let me share two of my favorites. Ephesians 4, verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
And then our theme scripture for today, Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Those are the two thing culprits that we're talking about. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. Pride and selfishness. But in humility, consider others better than yourself. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself. You guys, these are just not nice words that we read and talk about at weddings and that we see in greeting cards. God actually put these words in his word with the expectation that we would really live this way. Why is it that we struggle so much in our relationships with each other? Rather than humility, our relationships are often marked by strife and conflict. James provides some insight. In the first couple of verses of James 4, it says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill, mostly with words, and covet, but you cannot have what you want. So you quarrel and fight. James basically says that fights are caused by not getting what we want. That's the bottom line. We want what we want, and when we don't get what we want, or someone resists us or stand in the way, we get angry. It's all about my desires, my preferences, my rights, my expectations, my opinions, and my ambitions. And when we don't get what we want, the uglies come out. Anybody know what uglies look like? <laughs> the uglies, the negative reactions, the anger, the critical spirit, the meanness. I'm just amazed sometimes how mean we are to one another. The moodiness, the pettiness, the judgmentalism, the sarcasm, the unforgiveness, and even the desire to punish or get even. And guess what is at the root of all of that? Pride, exactly. A few verses later, in the same chapter, James goes on to say this, For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then James goes on a few verses later, and he gives the prescription for our condition. In verses 9 and 10, he says, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. When we recognize the uglies in us, our only response is to cry out to God in brokenness and repentance and to say, oh God, make me like you. Humble and gentle Jesus, just as you counted yourself as nothing so that God could be all, help me to do the same. Just as you emptied yourself and became a servant, help me to do the same. Let that sweet spirit of humility that I see in you be lived out through me. And as we cry out to God in those moments, he will be faithful to do what we can't do ourselves. And then, instead of putting our interests first, we will begin to have servants' hearts towards one another. Instead of being touchy and irritable, we will walk in greater patience and forbearance. Instead of giving into a spirit of contention, we will seek to understand one another and look for godly solutions. Instead of being critical and judgmental, we will learn how to give one another the benefit of the doubt and give each other the gift of acceptance. 
Instead of using our words to cause pain, we will use our words to build up and encourage one another. And instead of using, instead of being angry and bitter, we will learn to walk in the grace of forgiveness and love. All of these things are the fruit of humility. And as we surrender to God in true brokenness, he will do this work of humility in us. Okay, let's wrap this up. How can we walk in humility? So point one, humility is the essence of Christ-likeness. Point number two, humility is the key to healthy relationships. And then my last point, how can we walk in humility? Now here's a question that all of us need to ask ourselves. Do I value God's presence in my life? In fact, one of our songs this morning was, I love your presence, Lord. We all sang it. Of course we value his presence. If I asked that question of you and I asked you to raise your hands, every hand would go up. You wouldn't be here this morning if you didn't value and want God's presence in your life. But here's a connection that many of us don't make. If we value God's presence, then it's imperative that we deal with pride. Because the Bible says that God resists the proud. In fact, in Psalm 5, verse 5, it says, The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. On the other hand, humility actually attracts the presence of God. In Psalm 57, 15, God is speaking and he says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. God's, or humility, attracts God's presence. Now, all of us want to feel more of a sense of the presence of God in our lives. And if we do, we must be relentless in uncovering areas of pride and learn how to walk in humility. So how do we do it? First, we need to submit to voluntary accountability. Voluntary accountability. I said this before, but I'm going to say it again. The insidious thing about pride is that most of us are blind to it. It's the nature of pride. It keeps us from seeing it ourselves. We can see it in others, but we can't see it in ourselves. And so I think if we're serious about exposing pride in our lives, we need to invite one or two trusted friends to point out areas of pride in our lives. I've done this in my own life. I've given several per people permission. Anytime you see pride in my life, please call me on it. A good test of whether or not you are open to having people point out areas of pride in your life is whether you're open to receiving correction. Are you correctable? Are you teachable? When someone corrects you, how do you respond? Are you defensive? Do you justify yourself? Do you dismiss or minimize what they're saying? Or do you take the posture of humility that says, is there an element of truth in what this person is saying? Lord, are you using this person or this situation to reveal something in me that you want to change? Some of you are old enough to remember the Fonz on Happy Days. If you, if you remember him, you're dating yourself. The Fonz was so cool, he could never be corrected. And he could never say, I'm sorry. In fact, even when the Fonz knew that he was wrong, and he tried to say the words, I was wrong, he would go something like this, I was wrong. 
I was, he couldn't say I was wrong. <laughs> and so there's a lot of things you could say about that. I love that show. Proverbs 15, 31 says this. Whoever heeds life-giving correction will, will, be among, will be home among the wise. I love what David said in Psalm 141. He said, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil on my head. My head will not refuse it. You see the humility in David by actually welcoming correction. So the first thing we need to do to walk in humility is submit to voluntary accountability. The second thing is we need to recognize that we are dead to ourselves. Jesus humbled himself unto death, and he opened a path for us that we too must walk. Paul, being very aware of this, said this in 2 Corinthians 4, For we who are alive are always being given over to death. Why? So that his life, the life of Christ, may be revealed in our mortal body. It's what we observed this morning in the baptism. Romans 6. Or do you not know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death? In the same way, count yourselves or consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then one of the gals uh, um, this morning in baptism quoted this verse, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. You see, if we're dead, we're dead. What rights does a dead man have? What desires, preferences, ambitions, expectations, and entitlements does a dead man have? None. So if I'm dead, what part of me is alive? The part that Jesus lives in. Because it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in this body is not my own anymore. It's dead. The life I live in this body is the life that Jesus lives through me. It is in death to self that humility is perfected. Most of us try to avoid situations which would cause embarrassment or humiliation. We all try to avoid those situations. But if we count ourselves as nothing, as Jesus did, we would actually welcome every humiliation. This is something that I've been working on in my life. Anytime I put my foot in my mouth or I stumble or say something wrong and I'm humbled, I'm actually embracing that better than I did years ago. I still have a long ways to go, but I'm getting there. We would look at every person who tries us, every person who troubles us as a means to humility. The more I assert myself into the dynamic of life, the more I lobby for what I want, the less Christ will be seen in me. The more I acknowledge my emptiness and my nothingness before God, the more the life and the humility of Christ will be seen in me. It's only as a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies that it produces fruit. It's only as I consider myself dead that the resurrection life of the Lord can be lived out through me. So how do we walk in humility? First, by submitting to voluntary accountability. Second, by recognizing that we are dead to ourselves. And then third, by living out of our new nature. 
When Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus how to enter the kingdom of God, he said, you must be born again. To be born again literally means to be born from above. When we are born from above, our spirit comes alive as God's spirit comes to live inside of us. The theological term for this is regeneration or to be created anew. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 15, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Now, the new that has come is the very nature of God that's implanted in us. That's the good news. The bad news is, just because we have the nature of Christ doesn't mean that the old nature goes away. Perhaps you've noticed that. In fact, what happens to most of us is that we humble ourselves to receive Christ initially, but then we continue living our lives out of the old nature just like we always have. Little transformation takes place in us because we still are living our lives tapped into the old root system of our old nature, which is full of pride and everything that pride produces. That's why Paul says this in Colossians 2. He says, so then, just as you received Christ, just as you humbled yourself to receive Christ, so continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him. In other words, just as you humble yourself to receive Christ, continue in that humility by living your life rooted in him, not rooted in your old nature. Living the Christian life, you guys, is not just difficult, it's impossible. That's why we always say that it takes God to love God. You need God's nature in you, being lived out through you in order to live the Christian life the way it was meant to be lived. Growing in our faith and allowing God to produce the life of Christ in us requires a daily choice to live out of our new nature. Do you guys remember the illustration that Tom gave about some time ago about his ugly sweaters? Do you remember that? He may have brought in one of his ugly sweaters. The ugly sweaters represent the old nature. They were very ugly. Sorry, Tom. They were unattractive and even offensive. But they were so comfortable and easy to wear. That's how it is living our lives the way we've always lived them, according to the old nature. It's easy and it's comfortable and it feels so natural. The new clothes that Alice bought Tom represented his new nature. They were attractive, they were tasteful, and they were pleasing, but they were very uncomfortable, not easy to wear. They felt unnatural. But the more Tom chose to wear them, the more comfortable they became. The more we choose to put on the new nature of Christ, the more we will walk in the humility of Christ. And this is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The old self that we put off is the old nature. The new self that we must put on is the new nature or the very nature of God. The nature that we demonstrate each day is the nature that we put on that day. 
Every morning, just as we make a choice to go to our closet and pick out the clothes that we're going to wear, we need to make a choice about which nature we're going to put on. And as we consistently choose to stay rooted in Christ and live out of our new nature, the old nature will begin to have less and less influence over us. The strongholds of pride will be broken, and God will be able to produce in us that sweet humility that is such a beautiful reflection of who God is. And when Jesus returns at the end of this age and wraps everything up, God will make good on his promise to exalt those who have humbled themselves, and the meek will finally inherit the earth. Amen. At this time, I'd like to invite the worship team up. You guys, we have about five minutes left. And what I'd love to do as the worship team is getting ready to play is I would love for us to spend just a few minutes before the Lord. Join them in worship and just open yourselves up before God and see if he would speak to you. For some of you, you may already be aware. I mean, God has already brought this to your attention. You may already understand how you're hanging on to some things that you need to let go of to walk in humility. For others of us, we may need to wait upon the Lord for revelation about areas of pride that we're walking in. But I'd just like to take this next few minutes just to wait on the Lord, to ask him to search our hearts. Like David said, search me, O Lord, and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That was David's prayer. And so I, my prayer is that during this time of waiting on the Lord, you would just take a few minutes to let God speak to your heart. You're welcome to stay in your pews or you're welcome to come forward. We'll have some prayer teams and the prayer teams can come up right now if you'd like. And I'm just going to close us in prayer and then just let's wait on the Lord and let him do what, what he desires to do in our midst so that we can walk in humility and be a beautiful reflection of who he is. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much. Thank you so much for showing us that the only way we can relate to you, to depend upon you, to live in dependence upon you, is to walk in humility. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending the Son who lived in perfect humility before you and in perfect humility with others. Thank you, Lord, that even though Adam and Eve and the rest of us didn't walk in that humility, you have brought redemption. You are allowing us as the first fruits to enter into your original plan for us, which is to walk in humility and dependence upon you. And so, Lord, there's so many things in our lives, just like the disciples, that prevent that from happening. We struggle in this area in a deep way. But I'm so grateful that you've made a way by your death and resurrection. You've made a new way. We can be the first fruits and follow you in walking in humility before God. So, Father, help us to be accountable to one another so that we can live transparent lives before you. 
Help us to understand what it means to consider ourselves dead so that the life of Christ may be manifest through us. Help us, Lord, to learn how to get up every morning and to put on that new nature that is ours in Christ. Help us, Lord, that as we walk out of that new nature, the old nature will have less and less influence and power. Lord, in these few minutes before you, do your precious, supernatural, eternal work in us. We just pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So sit before the Lord. Let him speak to your hearts. Prayer teams can come forward. And if you'd like prayer, come forward this morning. Take the next few minutes. Make this special time before the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.